0: Wild lives by Fornographic. Hey, I'm Rochelle and welcome to the Wild Lives Podcast. Today we're chatting to renowned artist and award-winning whale naturalist, Rich Dolan, who's visiting Down Under, but spends most of his time working with whales in the Selwagon Bank area of Boston. Now before we chat to Rich and pick his brain about all things American whale, let's take a quick look at the Selwagon Bank and get a feel for this unique marine environment. The Stellwagen Bank Marine Sanctuary lies 40 kilometres east of Boston in Massachusetts Bay in America's northeast. This sprawling 2,000 square kilometre reserve is teeming with sea life thanks to a vast underwater plateau and deep water currents creating an upwelling of nutrients and minerals. This sustains countless species of fish and at least 130 different marine animals. And you'll find a range of whales in the area, including the fin, pilot, say, humpback, minke whale, along with the critically endangered North Atlantic right whale. Great whites and basking sharks, oceanic sunfish, and several species of dolphin and seal
1: are also regularly sighted in the area.
0: Hey Rich, thanks for joining us today.
1: Hello, Rochelle, thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> All right, let's get started. First up, tell us a bit about yourself. How did you come to be working with whales in Boston?
1: Well, I have a background in fine arts. I got a four-year degree for painting in northern Massachusetts and I moved to the city of Boston. Didn't really quite know what to do with myself so I started volunteering at the New England Aquarium and they had a lobster laboratory on the fifth floor where we were studying cases of shell disease and wild lobster populations. And whilst I was there, I met a naturalist who worked for the Whale Watch Boats. So I came aboard as an intern for her and the other um, scientists. And... Stuck with them for the first season and followed through the rest of the year. And next season, they invited me to work on the boats. And now I see whales for a living.
0: <laughs> You're actually based in the Stellwagen Bank Marine Sanctuary. Why is that such a special place to you?
1: Well, Stellwagen Bank Marine Sanctuary is special to the country. It's one of fourteen marine sanctuaries established. Um, in this case this location was protected in 1992 and it happens to be very accessible to Boston and communities out of the Cape Cod Peninsula. So it's just quite a rarity to have such a wilderness so accessible to the public. It's just a short boat ride out there really. And In particular, um, the whales we study out there, we can identify them quite easily if you become familiar with the species um, based on patterns you see on the bodies. So I always feel like a bit of a pro going out there and just immediately knowing what whales are who. So, yeah, that's certainly helped.
0: Yeah, that's pretty amazing. You've actually got really involved with that with your Tales of Stellwagen project. Tell us a little bit about that and how it began and unfolds now.
1: Well... When I started on the Whale Watch, I didn't realize just how particular the tail patterns of a humpback whale really are. And these are big animals we're talking here. like Their tails are 5 meters or 15 feet wide. And in our population, the patterns are very diverse. I, I know over here, um, out of Sydney, predominantly the tails happen to be white. But over on Stoagon Bank, we have a mix of... Hump at Rose with white tails, and with black tails, and mixes of black and white. And having a fine arts background, uh, I will look at these tails and think, you know what? These look like paintings that I would see over in New York City. If you're looking at the Abstract Expressionists from the 1950s and 1960s, you can compare a Jackson Pollock or a Franz Kline to the patterns that I'm seeing on wild animals. So I thought, I make art, but here's art that's waiting for me, these living paintings. So I became curious. I started replicating the tail patterns using graphite just on sketch pads I would bring out with me. And over time, as I realized how just intricate and involved the tail patterns were, I started spending more time on the tail patterns to the point where I was becoming more of a photorealist. And from there, I've started going into sculpture and just took off. Tell us about your sculptures. So what drove me to make sculpture, I would go out on these wheel watches with my illustrations. I would throw them on a small computer to show everyone. And something that I feel is powerful in arts is that using art... It's like a universal language. So if someone has a different dialect or um if they have different sensory abilities, they can look at a painting or an image and that will invoke thought and feeling in whatever capacity um they exercise. But we started um seeing diversity in the passengers we would have. You would have some passengers who are differently abled or in cases You know, some cases we would have passengers who didn't have eyesight or who had impaired vision. So I would think to myself, well, how can I make these abstract ideas of nature more accessible to these people that do not sense the world in the ways we do? And I got to thinking about my memories as a child um, in nature, like just the feeling of branches cracking under my boots while going on hikes or catching dragonflies uh, from behind, which is a skill. I challenge you to try and catch dragonflies. <laughs> and um, I just remember the, the feeling of their their wings upon my hands. So I got thinking, well, if these folks could actually feel the animals that we are seeing, maybe they would have more an idea of what they're hearing out there. So we started creating these wooden tails a couple feet wide and i would do that most care in uh, smoothing and sanding down the edges Um, with the fluke or the tail you're going to have a leading edge which is very smooth or a trailing edge which has notches and is quite bumpy and uh, those trailing edges can be unique from one humpback to the next so that's something that i really decided to exercise over the actual tail patterns is if you come and see you'd be able to feel the shape and the um i guess relative size of their tails yeah so that was the introduction to sculpture for me
0: and so have you been using that method to document certain
1: individuals who you've got to observe over the years with sculpture it's taken two different courses as an artist i like painting and I started creating these quite large wooden tails and I would replicate the tail patterns of animals that I would encounter all in the wild. But it took a different turn. I decided to start making humpback whale tails with a paint that acts like a whiteboard so you could take a dry erase marker to these tails. The What, what I found with these tail patterns out there is that they are naturally occurring, they seem to be genetically random, but they are susceptible to change. We do find humpback whales that are bitten by orcas, one of their only natural predators. They leave behind, with their teeth, these very unique uh, scars called rake marks. So, people may not understand that they're not born with these markings, so using a series of reductive tools, they can apply... um, dry erase paints to these models and then they can use tools that I supply to then create these markings yeah. themselves to show just how malleable the tail pattern really is yeah. and that kind of engagement where you can change a pattern before in your very eyes it, it helps you to understand that other animals can do that to these creatures
0: to me it sounds like when you see a rizzo's dolphin how it has all those marks it's kind of similar with what you're doing with the painting right like it's uh, a soft surface.
1: Uh, yeah, that's funny you say that. Um, when I was growing up, I was very fickle with my favorite animals. And at one point, whale sharks were my favorite creatures, and then Komodo dragons. But the first dolphin species I really seemed to have a, give a heck about was the Rizzo's dolphin, because I wondered, how are those markings made? So I think maybe I'm touching on my childhood wonder of that species, yeah. and recognizing that I enable... Uh, passengers now to make similar markings. But yeah, Rizzo's Dolphins, that's a very good connection. Yeah,
0: yeah. You, can, you can kind of see it in some of your work. I did want to ask you, tell me about some of the most uh, memorable humpbacks that you encounter regularly.
1: Oh, I mentioned I was fickle before and I'm still fickle now because every time I think of the whales of Stowag and Bank, it it really um, it changes day to day. I I do have a couple favorites, though. I I am loyal to some whales. There's a whale named Tinder. Tinder's got an interesting story behind him and also his name. Um, I met Tinder back in 2015, only a couple of times. Um, We would go pretty far out, pretty far out on the bank to the easternmost corner where... Boston boats usually don't go, usually because we don't have enough gas, but sometimes we do it anyways because the, the hunger for nature is strong. <laughs> so uh, there was this young whale where I spotted just twice and didn't see it again for the rest of the season, but it had a very strange pattern, uh, almost like a black cobweb, um, that, like it was made by a goth spider or something. Emo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, an emo, emo spider. I mean, aren't all spiders emo? Um, I would be an emo spider if I was. Yeah, certainly. So, then I encountered that whale again in 2016. It was in the middle of Stowag and Bank, where the shipping lanes for container vessels travel, and although all the boats had gone north or south, no one was in midbank. I was working with Captain Earl Fagan, he's a great fellow, very knowledgeable, and we found this whale in the distance, just one. Sometimes we get spoiled on Stowag, and we like to find associations or short-lived social groups as opposed to singular whales. But we had we had a, a feeling about this whale, so we approached him. He went on a dive for several minutes. We got discouraged, and then he breached, and then he breached again, and again and again, several times like a skipping stone, and then he came up again repeatedly for an hour, and. We lost count after 100 breaches, just over 50 minutes. It got to the point where I talked to her and I said, you know, let's leave this whale because we don't really understand why they breach. Maybe this animal is breaching because it's trying to deter us, um, trying to alarm us, to make us go away. So we left and went over to look at a finback whale, another species on Stowagon. whole time I'm looking back at me about a mile off and tinder is still breaching. So we decided to go back because... Heck, we left, and he kept going. So we went back, and we saw another 50 or so breaches, and we went home. And that was the last I saw of him for that year, 2017. I found him again, and he breached over 100 times on that trip, too. <laughs> his name... I like his name, because it's a name I chose for him. The scientist and naturalists on Stowagen Bank. Once every few years, we'll have naming sessions where we all pull together what we think are good names and other naturalists will be the judges of that so they'll judge the names we pick and with tinder when you look at the bottom of his tail towards the leading edge you will see these hatch marks um these perpendicular black lines that i think looked like tinder like kindling yeah. and um yeah I, apparently they decided it was a good name all the other scientists I know him as Tinder, but my colleagues call him Swipe Right for anyone who uses those dating apps. (laughs) Good whale.
0: Yeah, he sounds amazing. There were a couple of others you were telling me about today as well. I can't remember their names. I think there was a female who you've seen for...
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, so I, I could just insert any number of female whales that I know out there because popular man um there's a whale named solo yes so solo i myself haven't encountered unfortunately but solo is very well known uh, for being 66 years old 67 years old as of this year and this is why the tail patterns are further interesting is that in maturity unless the tail patterns are altered by the teeth of an orca or, unfortunately, by entanglement, the tail patterns remain the same throughout the whale's adult life. So there was a photograph, I believe, from the 1950s or the 1960s that was matched to a photograph taken within the last few years. And these tail patterns are like fingerprints. No two humpback whales have the same tail pattern. So, just from visual records alone, we could judge how old Solo was. And recently, there was a male humpback whale biopsy who died at the age of 95, and a female biopsy who perished at the age of 84. So, Solo is unique just for being really old. Um, there's another, another humpback whale named Scylla, and Scylla, spelled S-C-Y-L-O-A. Uh, Scylla's a very popular whale of the Provincetown. There's a fantastic whale watch called Dolphin Fleet. Some of the first whale watchers in the whole country, they kind of pioneered northeast coast whale watching. Not kind of, they really did. And um, they're big fans of Scylla. Scylla has spent a lot of time around Provincetown this year. Oh man, I know they would throw me in the brig for not remembering her age. I, I believe she's she's in her 30s, and... She averages a calf every, I think, 2.3 years. So she's a very productive female. So I may get the numbers wrong, but what I can claim to be true is her very um, amazing bubble cloud feeding. Um, We see a lot of bottom feeding humpback whales in the Stowagon Bank. We send down GoPros with suction cups attached to the whales, and with that footage, we're discovering that they use their heads like shovels to scoop up sand to look for fish. So it's a behavior we don't see from the boats, but rather using uh, special technology by cheating. But Scylla, I myself have seen a few times this season, has been um, bubble cloud feeding. And when this occurs, she'll exhale gases from her blowholes whilst underwater. And... Sometimes there would be a big, powerful single exhalation, so the water would just glow green like a warhead would set off. You start seeing some fish jumping out, fish like mackerel or herring, and then you just see her explode out of the water after them. Wow. And she's a very large whale. She's one of the biggest humpback whales that I currently know, which is an awesome sentence I never thought I'd get to say in my adulthood. Yeah, so uh, Silver's great, and she has a calf this year. I think it's her 14th calf. Cool since we've started uh, watching her. So another productive female, yeah.
0: Speaking of mums and calves, you mentioned before that you do see mums and calves year after year eventually. Tell me about the time that you saw a calf and a mum reunite.
1: So they typically give birth every two to four years on average that we know of. And there are a couple unique whales on the Stowagon Bank. Um, there's a whale named Abrasian. Abrasian had three calves um, within the span of three years. So she had one calf after the other. Like She'd bring them up to the feeding ground of Stowagan Bank. She'd travel down south, split from her calf. And um, it would turn out she was pregnant while she had a calf with her. So she would just like pop one out and then um, find them mates down there. I mean, arguably, probably a dozen or more mates. And then she'd come up with another calf, go back down south, give birth immediately again. But there's a second whale who's done this, and that whale's name is Rapier. I believe it's Rapier. And she had a calf in 2014, 15, and um, another one after, before that. So three calves in four years. I believe she had her 2016 or so calf. Maybe it was her 15 calf. While she was with that offspring, a calf from the previous season found her and tried nursing from her because she was currently nursing her current offspring. So I heard accounts where she was shoving that calf from a year passed away because in the humpback whale law, if they have law... After the feeding season is over, you're done. You're on your own for the rest of your life. So you're not supposed to be coming back for for milk because you're supposed to be feeding on fish. But that whale, I guess, didn't graduate. So that whale tried nursing from the mother while the mother had a calf already. So that was a second-year calf, trying to adopt first-year behavior. But
0: also, it wouldn't have just done that to any cow, would it? It would have only approached its own mother. So you have to think that there would have been recognition between the calf and saying oh there's my mom and that's my teat
1: yeah i i mean that is a fine argument for humpback whales recognizing one another it's something i think it can be anecdotal but from what we have seen and recorded out there we will see the same humpback whales reuniting in associations i've been talking a bit about whales that i haven't seen myself i'll tell you about a great whale named nile Um, Nile, I've actually painted her fluke pattern a dozen times more than any other whale, just because something about that pattern, it looks like she has a river on the left side of her tail, so hence Nile River. And I have seen Nile and a whale named Pitcher. Those two whales have been side by side at least a few days every season, and usually I'll see them um, double flipper slapping, where they roll onto their backs, they'll take their... they're meter long flippers and just slap the surface. When Niall does it, Pitcher will respond or vice versa. So I've seen that every single year as a naturalist since they started in uh, 2014.
0: That's amazing. They're friends. They catch up, they have a slap around, and then they split up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, either or the other, maybe they're just arguing and they haven't resolved the differences. <laughs>
0: What actually are the whales doing when they're with you? I mean, here in Sydney, they're on their migration for breeding, and then they go back down south for feeding. It's inverted for you, isn't it?
1: It is. We're in the northern hemisphere, so the, the dates by which our whales feed and your whales feed is um, kind of flipped on its head. So between the months of March through November is when we have humpback whales feeding in the Gulf of Maine and on Stoagen Bank. When they go down for breeding, they don't do so in the same region. They have to travel all the way down to the Dominican Republic. They've also been found breeding off of, I believe, Bermuda and um, also around the St. Croix Islands. So, all the West Indies. But the popular mating spot is Silver Bank off of the Dominican. Mm. So, um, those whales travel up to Stellwagen Bank and they take advantage of the seafloor, its topography, it's quite unique. Stairwagen Bank was created by glacial activity 10,000 or so years ago. We have upwelling currents that travel along this underwater plateau that used to be above sea level, but at the end of the last ice age, it all sank underwater. But it's those upwelling currents hitting the side of the bank that provide nutrients for fish like sand lance, herring, mackerel. Even we do see some crow around the area. So it's a very very effective nutrient cycle Mm. and it attracts whales um, who come to stay for the season but it's also a pit stop perhaps for whales going to Iceland or Greenland who are using Stowagan Bank as a a pit stop. Mm. We think this because we'll photograph tail patterns of some humpback whales in the early spring and we never see them again that season and they're not a part of our Gulf of Maine catalog as we have a catalog of the tail patterns.
0: Mm. What other kind of whales would you see semi-regularly?
1: So the humpback whales are the the MVPs most certainly. Um, I mean, we can almost rely on sightings. I did the math for humpback whales um, back in 2017. 98.3% of my trips we would see humpback whales. Wow. So we would see them quite often. One out of 51 trips... We wouldn't see humpback whales, but maybe we would see minke whales, Mm. the smallest baleen whale species encountered in the Gulf of Maine. So they're quite abundant. They're a little harder to track. They can be identified by their tiny flippers, what we call the minke mittens, that have a band of white skin, but we don't really get good looks of that. And um, it's also a feeding ground for finback whales, and they've seen them feeding on fish such as mackerel. So, finback whales are uncommon, but they are encountered there. They can reach lengths around, um, if I get my conversions right, about 20 to 25 meters at length. They are. And the um, College of the Atlantic and the Center for Coastal Studies over in Provincetown, they actually have access and have put together a fin whale catalog where they're identified by the dorsal fins.
0: The dorsal
1: fins. Yeah, the dorsal fins.
0: I thought you'd probably go with, with the rostrum because don't they have like it's, it's uneven. Like one side's got the patch and the other side is empty.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, being one of the only asymmetrically mammals in the world, they do have a large chevron pattern that you find behind one of the two eyes. Um, sometimes, if they're generous, if they're arcing to go on the dive, they'll show us the chevrons. But if we don't get a full a full dive where we see the head you always almost always will see the dorsal fin unless the whales are asleep then they tend to lay pretty low but it's the same technique i've used for identifying white sharks looking at the trailing edge the the back of the fin has very unique notches
0: speaking of sharks this is another one of your specialties transition (laughs) Transition. (laughs) great white sharks you've recently been putting together um dorsal models as well but that's not the only thing you've been working with these guys for a long time tell us everything
1: All right, I will tell you everything, yes. So um, when I started in marine biology, I did so as an artist. So um, all my background is just from reading books and publications and volunteering my time. So back in 2000 and, wow, a lifetime ago, 2013, I went with a group called Fins Attached. Fins Attached is a... um, small research group, actually stationed in Colorado, but the fleet that they collaborate with, they go to Mexico. Finns Attached goes to places such as Guadalupe Island and the Riviera Hehego Archipelago, which was my first liveaboard trip, and that really um, got me hooked in shark research. Um, that was the first and only instance that I got to assist in tagging a white shark or another white shark a Galapagos shark on the inside where they use an acoustic transmitter where you just make a, a small incision in the shark, you actually put in this device that emits kind of a Morse code and then there will be bo- How do you get it into them though? Do you fire it through a dart or something? Oh, so um, uh, with that group we, we would actually wrangle them onto the boat with a, um, a kind of like a catch and release with a model oh, filament line. Okay. Not methods that i'm the most fond of but for the research that comes out of it i mean really a lot of science goes into the protection and conservation of marine habitats and to protect these sharks you have to have an estimate of their migratory route and the size of their population so sometimes you have to use pretty invasive methods but um with these particular tags it's about the um I, I don't use them, but e-cigarettes, I think some of them are pretty small, or like the size of a laser pointer. Mm. Um, so you put this device in the shark, and it emits kind of a Morse code of beeps, and then there will be buoys that will pick up the series of beeps, and you can identify the shark by the sequence that those devices emit. Oh. Yeah.
0: Like kind of Morse code style
1: for sharks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And... um friends attached does a lot more work nowadays with satellite tags which are a little less invasive you can use a a carbon pole almost like a harpoon to get in on the base of the dorsal fin which i prefer as a method of tracking and uh, those tags are pretty cool because they they have a metal coupling and they they i think they have a primer on the inside and it's set on the timer, so at about eight months in, the, the coupling will actually um, melt and burn, and so then the tag will detach from the shark, and that equipment, some of it can be retrieved. So I talked about fin whales and their unique dorsal fins. The white sharks also have unique dorsal fins, but they can be identified by white patterns on their undersides, or their ventral sides. So you can look at the edges of the white against the black skin, especially around the gills. They have these white pigmentations that don't really change over time, and it's similar in identification methods to matching up fluke patterns of humpback whales, so you'll find these similarities in the study between completely different species.
0: In Stellwagen, have you seen repeat offenders of great whites in the area?
1: So it is a little tricky identifying the white sharks of Stellwagen Bank. Um, I'm more familiar with individuals out of South Africa and out of Guadalupe Island. Easier to identify them by dorsal fin on Stellwagen Bank because the water is so... It's just so lousy, so rich with phytoplankton. Mm-hmm. You put your head underwater, you can't see 10 meters in front of you. So the counter-shading is out of the question, un- unless you happen to um, have a GoPro and you track these sharks methodically around places like uh, Chatham and Troha, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So dorsal fins are something that we use. There's also the the New England Coastal Wildlife Alliance. They work with crew Carlson, who rescues ocean sunfish. She also studies basking sharks, and she's working on identification of their dorsal fins by looking at their trailing edges.
0: Can you identify different mola-molas, sunfish?
1: I've been whale-watching for six years, and no one has ever asked me that. <laughs> um, so mola-molas, it's pretty tricky, they tend to have a lot of scars, sometimes from predation by seals, sometimes from bumping into boats and in their propellers, um, but their scars, um, they tend to change over time. It's cute because I'll have a naturalist that goes out one day and then they'll join me on the fun trip because we like to, whale watch watching our days off too. <laughs> we're paid in whale sightings more than anything and, uh, they'll say, oh, it's the same Mola Mola as yesterday, because it's got scarring around the head or around the uh, strange dorsal fin. But typically, um, I don't recognize Mola Mola molas season to season. I have no knowledge of their migratory behaviors. And um, I I think they might be more cosmopolitan, meaning they have such a a wide range that I don't know if I see the same one twice mm. uh, over the course of one year to another.
0: What about with basking sharks? Do you have repeat visitors there, or are they harder to recognize as well?
1: For the basking sharks, I'm trying to compile my um, my own little database of their dorsal fins. The photos we take is the property of the Center for Coastal Studies, unless you go on the day off with your own camera. So... I'm working on sending these photographs to Krill, and um, she has seen a lot more basking sharks than I have. There's a scientist named uh, Jeff Nebone, awesome last name, who works with the New <laughs> England Aquarium. He works quite closely with basking sharks, so uh, I, I think maybe the two of them could probably get together. And um, Not that I'm playing matchmaker here, but they, they have a wealth of photos of their fins. I'm sure they've encountered the same individuals. But like I said, with the scarring, it heals quite quickly, but we can tell maybe one day from the next if we're seeing the same one. I haven't recognized one from one season to the next, only because I only see, like, maybe one to half a dozen basking sharks a year.
0: That's pretty special, though. I'd be stoked to see just one.
1: Yeah, they're they're quite wild. Um, They're great. The basking sharks, they're filter-feeding sharks. so. There, there's this idea that they don't have teeth. Instead, they have these gill rakers on the inside of their gills that can filter living detritus from the water. But in truth, they actually do have teeth. They have a couple hundred of them that are very, very tiny. I presume they've evolved to the point where they don't really need those teeth anymore. And when they feed, they do so with their mouths wide open. They're not chewing on anything because they are they're ram ventilate feeders meaning as they hold their mouths open they're taking in oxygen through their gills but they're also feeding simultaneously with their gill rakers so they got teeth but they don't use them
0: nice all right last question tell me about your ultimate day in still Wagon. like it could be yeah no one that's actually happened like your best most memorable day
1: yeah all right i i've been with them for six years and i have to give out Shout out to Captain Chip Riley. Some of my best trips have been with this gentleman. And he's got a couple decades out there on the bank. I won't say how many because he doesn't want me to tell people how old he is. So my last trip of the year, I think, was my favorite in recent memory. We went out there to look for humpback whales. And I had seen them in the morning with Captain Chip. And they were a bit scattered in the afternoon. We weren't terribly optimistic, but we started seeing breaching towards the southwest corner of Stowagen Bank. We headed in that direction. In doing so, we actually found a couple of ocean sunfish. These ocean sunfish, they're the second largest species. The mole Alexundrini would be the first largest, but these guys are still bruisers. They're still at least a couple meters wide. Um, So we found a couple of those. Those are low Easter eggs we don't find all the time. But we continued south and we found two humpback whales. One humpback whale named Clipper, a second named Quote, they were traveling together and they started double breaching. Oh. Now, that's quite fine. Um, it's not something you see all the time. I saw that with you yeah. today with the Mom and Calf, so that was pretty awesome, my first day in Sydney. But my favorite humpback whale behavior is flipper slapping. And my favorite, favorite flipper slapping behavior is double flipper slapping. But It's even better when it's echoed between two humpback whales. So Quote and Clipper rode onto their backs. They were both double flipper slapping. I just had to take it in. My intern, Cindy, awesome intern, really smart. She's going to go on to uh, teach in the state of Massachusetts. I just gave her my camera and I, I just had to watch it with my own eyes. I... Ended up just letting her have a memory card, and I took my camera back because then a whale named etch came and joined. So we had three humpback whales who were double flipper slapping together. And that's something I have never seen, and my expectations are always low, so I'm always happy when I see things. But I don't know if I'll ever see triple, double flipper slapping ever again.
0: That's absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, it was was pretty wild. It's, It's like hard not to talk about it, and then just fall into silence thinking about it. But you—you you guys can't see this with me. You're only hearing this uh, sultry voice. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting today. Enjoy the rest of your time in Australia. Yeah, thank you kindly. Thanks for listening. Now, while you're online, jump onto www.richardwdolan.com to see Richard's amazing artwork. And you can also find it on Etsy and Instagram at Tales of Stellwagen. I'll put all those links up on fornographic.com where you'll find more podcast episodes and photography and other fun stuff. Catch you next time. Wild Lives by Fornographic. Check out our wildlife photo gallery at fornographic.com. And on Instagram, at Fornographic.